0: Today, you've got six chapters. It's less than half of where you were last week. My goal tonight is just to sort of wet our whistle in this Galatians so that get to the week's proceeding with development. You'll be somewhat familiar, at least, with the timbre of the book. So go to the Lord with me, if you would, please, in prayer, and we'll jump in tonight. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to turn our hearts to you and know that you've got beautiful things to say, great exhortations, wonderful challenges. And Lord, I pray that tonight beautiful and wonderful and profound things would take place in here. We would hear you so well. And Lord, that we would just genuinely be touched by you. But Lord, that you would tonight Unmuddy, Lord, purify what has been mucked up, Lord, by and convoluted by whatever way that it's made it so, and that we would really just have that beautiful, simple truth tonight. And in that, Lord, feed our souls as we've come hungry. Jesus, in Your name, Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any night, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. Uh, leading up to the book of Galatians, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has gone by divine intervention to the house of a centurion named Cornelius. Cornelius has invited all of his sort of family and friends, those of his influence in his circle, all to the house. Peter has had a dream he was down in Jaffa. He's made his way up now to Caesarea. And, and it is a really crucial and pivotal moment in the history of the church because prior to that point, people were only sharing with Jewish people. So when God said in Jesus speaking, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, their thought was to reach the Jewish people and the ends of the earth. dispersion and I'm looking around the room here and I don't see anyone that I would say is probably purebred Jewish which would mean that none of us would qualify if the early church remained where it was before chapter 10 but in chapter 10 Peter has been given a vision in which he was told on three different occasions after saying the words no one should ever put together no and Lord He is told, don't call unclean or common what I've made clean. And then he gets this invitation to speak at a centurion's house, for which he does. And when he does, the Holy Spirit sort of jumps them. It isn't just that they demonstrate some form of spiritual prowess. They actually demonstrate the same sign that, they, that Peter and the gang, 120, had received in Acts chapter 2 when Jesus said you'd receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And that is that they began to speak in other languages. For which then Peter's response is, should anyone forbid these guys to be baptized, since they've clearly received the Holy Spirit the same way we have. If God had done anything else, there could have been a sort of strata thing. But because they demonstrated the same gift as the Jewish people, It really just didn't allow you to put him in another category. So, everything seems all hunky-dory until Peter starts heading back. Now, it does tell us when they were in that position. God makes this special note. And if if you're actually sort of a little savvy to the Bible, take a little left from Galatians to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Because in Acts, chapter 10, when... Peter was uh, speaking in there, they start speaking in in other languages. It tells us, and there's a distinction now in Acts 10.45, that those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Well, now all of a sudden you have Jewish people that are saved, and you have non-Jewish people who are saved. It tells us if you flip to Acts 11.2, it says that when Peter then returned up to Jerusalem, those of the of the circumcision contended with him. Now, it's a bit strange when you consider the fact that the reason they're contending with him is because they would share Jesus with you. That's the point here. So they said, you went into a Gentile's house and you ate with him? And there becomes then the controversy. All of a sudden... There's a group of people, and it's blowing the mindset of the Jewish people, who are saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that people that aren't Jewish could be saved?" And it becomes a sort of a showdown, for which then Peter has to give testimony again, saying the very same thing that we read in chapter 10, that Peter had given the, the given the gospel message. The Holy Spirit jumps them. They show the same signs that they demonstrated in Acts 2, for which then the Jewish council or the 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 Christian council, if you will, in Jerusalem looks and says, oh, well, then it appears as if God saves non-Jews as well. And you would think that that would be the end of the story, but it's not. After that point, Paul then becomes pastor. Pastor. And after Paul becomes pastor of the church in Antioch, a church, by the way, that has spread its borders because it doesn't just reach out to traditional Jewish people, but the Hellenistic Jews as well, still again not reaching to the Gentile. But ultimately, God sets apart Saul at that point, later to become Paul, and a man named Barnabas to go out into the mission field. And as they do, everywhere Paul turns, Where there are Gentiles, they seem to be getting saved. But somehow in all of this, there are a group of people that really still have a problem with the fact that Gentiles were getting saved. And I remind you, some of you are familiar with this from previous uh, messages, but there were two different groups of people that were under two different schools of teaching back in the days of somewhere about the time of King Herod the Great. They were called the first two original sages of Judaism, one named Shammai and one named Halel. Halel, or Halel the Elder, which by the way his name means praise, was a transplant, an immigrant from Babylon. He was a woodcutter who was so poor that when he arrived into Israel... He couldn't afford to pay for his Torah teaching. Which there's something already that I go, wait a minute, he has to pay for that? But because he was so quick to learn, and because he was so good with what he was understanding, they actually abolished the fee for Torah teaching because of this man. He was known for being a very kind and gentle man. He was the one that ultimately would pass the law that a man would have to, in order to divorce his wife, he must tell her. Because before that, apparently, it wasn't a lot. Because he was a transplant, the other guy, Shemai, who was much more the austere, disciplined individual, he was much more of the purest amongst the Jewish people. It wasn't just that you had Jewish blood. It wasn't even that you were a purist in the sense that you were completely Jewish in your bloodline. But also, you had to have been born and raised a local in Israel. He would actually declare that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. So understand that you were going to be under one of those two influences. Though though the common people did side with Hillel, there wasn't a a mindset of those that were more of the sort of national proud kind of people. They might be sort of the the EDL kind of people. And they were the ones that would really quickly side with Shemai. Now some of those had become Pharisees. And as they become Pharisees, they became quick to have a real problem with the idea that Gentiles were getting saved. And as Paul started to head on tour to share Jesus and Gentiles were getting saved all throughout the Middle East first, they had a real problem and they started to follow him around, creating trouble. And, and, And even if they sided with the point or conceded with the fact that maybe Gentiles would be saved, the way that they sort of all resolved it in their heart is well, then you just kind of have to become a proselyte first. So by Acts 15, you can turn there so you can see this with me. It tells us in verse 1 that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brothers, the brethren, that unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. And the idea of it was, well, if you're going to be saved, technically you still have to be Jewish. Though you were born Gentile, maybe this proselyte thing is sort of your technicality. It tells us that the contention became so big. This was almost a fist fight up there in Antioch that they went down to Jerusalem to settle the matter. But look at Acts 15, verse 5. What it tells us who this group is. It tells us some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the laws of Moses. Now, what's interesting is is that there were a group of people that were very proud because of their religious background. And when they kind of came to that point where they really found Jesus, what they did was kind of did an arabesque. They didn't necessarily drop everything like we should and allow God to reinvent. And truth be told, we all can be like that if we're not careful. It doesn't matter where you come from. Somewhere down the line, there are parts of us that we want to drag over the cross as if somehow God could just clean it up and make it better instead of reinvent us. But understand that Every one of us. It doesn't matter if you came from a drug-abusive background, a violent background, a homosexual background, or came from a background where you learned hymns and memorized Scripture by two. You learned the alphabet and the Hebrew alphabet so you know, side by side as you learned Psalm 119. Wherever you came from, the point is: not matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we came from because we're all in the same place, which is that we have to lay down who we are to let God reinvent us completely. So no matter where you've come from, it isn't going to be like, let's get all of the former blah, blah, blah over in this corner or whatever, because we're all in the same boat, which is that we all need to let God kill who we were to become this new person. These Pharisees were demonstrating what happens when you don't let that happen, is that you take something with you and it becomes an issue of pride, because what you usually drag over becomes, if you will, a sort of main element to your identity that becomes really hard to lay down. Now, for me, I was raised, my dad was a professional athlete and my mom was a professional singer. She was a musician. My whole life was wrapped up in those two things. And I remember what it was like coming to Christ and saying, I'll never play another instrument. I'll never sing another note. And I'll never do anything athletic like ever in my life again, unless you tell me, Lord, because I don't want to be known for those things anymore. I want you to be known instead. It was the longest six minutes of my No, I'm just kidding. Actually, it, was, it wasn't It was one of those Abraham and Isaac things, you know, where you're kind of like, Lord, I'm going to lay this down. You just tell me when. Just tell me when. It wasn't one of those at all. As a matter of fact, I didn't even sing for six months. Because I just didn't want to do it unless I could make sure that Jesus was the center of it. Oh, that I should still, I still need to do that. I'm like, all right, Lord, where am I on this? on any and every area. So understand, these Pharisees who believed, the whole point was simple, is that they just didn't want to stop being Pharisees. And you can find this, by the way, because you can go to Chinese Christian Fellowship, Black Christian Fellowship, White Christian Fellowship, although that one's racist, for whatever that's worth, right? Or whatever the thing is, and the moment you add it on to Christian, they compete with each other. Messianic. If you can walk in there and not be Jewish... And still be on an equal par with them all, I'm good with it. But you're probably aware of the fact no matter what I do, I'm never going to be Chinese. I could go into, I'm an official member of the Chinese Christian Fellowship back at the university where we came from, but I'll never be Chinese. But praise God, Jesus was the point. But there are some places, you know this, that no matter where you come from, if you're not that group, you'll never really have a chance. To be anything like anyone else. You'll always be sort of second class. Well, and that becomes the point with these Pharisees. Is they already were the upper class. And because they were the upper class, it was a rough thing to let go of. And granted, it's true. Because that is a lot from a worldly perspective to let go of, but it's nothing in the sight of eternity. And that becomes the problem. So please understand, when Paul starts sharing, he has to go there and he has to deal with these people. And these Pharisees who believe they are like, look at these people have to become Jewish. It's the only way that it makes sense in my head. And God says, no, if you actually threw all of Scripture, I have wanted mankind since the beginning. Why did I pronounce judgment on the the Egyptian gods? It wasn't just for the Israeli. It was for the Egyptian too. Why do you think they left a mixed multitude? But what's interesting is that Paul will always have a following that's an anti-Paul following for his whole life. And I don't know if you know that. I mean, here's a guy that a group of people follow him around trying to reverse what he does for the rest of his ministry. For instance, Paul would tell us when he speaks to Titus, and that's towards the end of his ministry, at least as we have in Scripture. He'll actually talk about these people that are given over to fables and idle talk. And especially the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Remember what Paul says when he's put in prison? That's like 62, 63. A.D. It's the end of the book of Acts, where Paul actually writes to the Philippians. And he says, well, some will preach the gospel out of sincerity, but others, really not sincere at all, but actually supposing to add greater conflict to my chains. Who do you think he's speaking of? Which means, Paul's entire life, there was another group of people that never really, never really gave in. They got to the point where God says, it's going to be me or this thing, and they picked this thing. Which, in their case, was being a Pharisee. And that can happen to any of us. And say, you know, well, in the end of it all, is it that you're black? Is it that you're American? Is it that you're English? Is it that you're whatever? Whatever. You're an athlete. You're an erudite. You know, you're know. you a humorist. You're a whatever it is. Is that the thing? Or is Jesus going to become the thing? Because in the end of it all, He has no interest in being a moon to orbit around a universe you create. He needs to be the center of it. If it's really going to work. He deserves to be. So what's interesting is when we get into the book of Galatians, the whole point of the letter is exactly that. Many believe, by the way, it's one of his earliest letters. And the reason is, is because of this council that took place in, in Acts 15, doesn't seem to be mentioned. Now, whether that really be the case or not, I can't really say, because it doesn't give a timestamp stamp on it. But I can tell you this much. Paul had gone through to Galatia on two different occasions. If people that sort of, you know, kind of that's where they go with all of this, kind of play it out that way, well, then he would have written this letter before he'd been there. The two places, by the way, for what it's worth, are in Acts 16 and in Acts 18. In Acts 16, we read, by the way, when Paul had just picked up Timothy, that he had gone through the regions then of, of these areas, of Galatia and then phrygia and it says, in that order. And that was, by the way, when he went through that region, remember, of Galatia, that was when he went from there then and he tried to go into Bithynia in Asia. Some of you are familiar with that, but the Holy Spirit didn't permit him. He went through Galatia first to do that. So we do have record of that. Two chapters later in Acts 18, it says then, he went over those regions of, of um, Galatia and of Phrygia, and it says, strengthening the brothers. So he went back to that place. Paul will tell us in this letter that it was out of infirmity that he visited him in the first place. So it's important to know. And we're going to have some really beautiful and very unique things about the book of Galatians that you can't get in other books. Very cool little unique moments. Including, by the way, one where Paul and Peter seem to have a showdown. We don't read that in any other text. So, please understand something here. Gaul, like a Galatia. It is the center region, not a city, but a region of Turkey. Like Galacticus, Gaul means milk. Like our galaxy. And the idea of the Gauls, or the Galatians, is that they were a milky white looking people in the middle of Turkey. And that's the name for their region. Now some people, you've, you've, maybe you've met, I mean, one thing's for sure, there's no shortage of Turkish places to eat in London. Perhaps you've actually met Turkish people who work in Turkish restaurants, who you've seen in some cases look very Mediterranean. They have that beautiful olive skin, they're sort of thin and gaunt, And perhaps you've seen other people, and they say they're from Turkey, and you look and go, how? You actually look like you're from, like, Sweden. Well, maybe they're actually from the center area of this area of Galatia, by the way, because it's very much the way that they looked there, for what it's worth. This letter, because it is a letter where this church now these churches, and we'll see that it's more than one, in this region have been after Paul went through the area, these guys, these circumcisers, as Paul would call them, have made their way in now and played this whole Jewish game on them. It is the most intense letter that Paul writes. As with Second Corinthians was the most emotional letter, this is the most angry. Paul will actually say on two different occasions in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, in both cases he says, look, at if we or an angel of God or anyone else preaches any other gospel than the one we've already preached to you, let him go to hell. You can't get more serious than that. So when some other guy says some angel came and actually gave him gold plates and it's a different gospel, you should hear what Paul has to say about it because he repeats himself twice, verses 8 and 9. He's very serious about that. He gets to the point, by the way, because it's the and we won't develop the idea of circumcision. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I wish they just cut themselves off completely. And this is a guy that's getting very serious about it. Interesting because of all of the churches that he writes to, there are clearly at least 13 letters to Paul. And I'm just under the impression there are 13, and that's it. That Paul's written he signed his name to. Of those thirteen letters, and you've got churches that are turning, you know, the spiritual world into a into pandemonium and into a circus. You have guys sleeping with their mothers. You have people that are getting drunk at the communion table and he never doubts their salvation. I think that's fantastic. You have people that are freaking out because Paul's in prison. But he doesn't doubt their salvation. There are people that have been convinced that the rapture happened and they were left behind. That's the Thessalonians. But he doesn't doubt their salvation. Only one church does Paul, or group of an area, does Paul ever say, I have doubts about you, and it's this one. And you know why? Because the issue isn't just these other things. Though they're important, they're not the thing. This church has actually gone away from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And there's the difference. They walked away from the gospel. So listen, for what it's worth. And I just wanted to kind of point out a couple things in this. Uh, In regards to Paul, I'll get unique information about what happened once Paul got saved. I'll get it only in this book, by the way. I won't even get it in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we'll see even more succinctly. In chapter 6, verse 11, we'll see, by the way, as well as in chapter 4, this development of Paul's infirmity, where he says that you would have plucked out your eyes for me. Chapter 6, verse 11, he says, Look at what large letters I've written to you personally with my own hand. In 617, he says, Now look at, let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I mean, this guy's been beat up, even as he's responding to this. In this particular book, by the way, Paul says about these that are his opponents that they trouble you and want to pervert the gospel, chapter 1, verse 7. He calls them in chapter 2, verse 4, false brothers secretly brought in and that came by stealth to spy out the liberty in which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. We read that Peter was swept aside by these guys and actually played the hypocrite. In chapter 4, verse 17, we read that these people not only zealously court you, but then they exclude you that you would be zealous for them. It tells us in 5.12, again, that he wishes they would cut themselves off. And in chapter 6, verse 12, he says that they only not only desire to make a good showing in the flesh, but they would compel them to be circumcised, that they wouldn't suffer the persecution for the cross of Christ. But then it says they also do so because what they really want is to boast in your flesh. These particular people that Paul is writing to, he actually says, who's bewitched you? Chapter 3, verse 1. He says that they're turning away from... The truth of God into weak and beggarly elements, and desire again to be in bondage. In chapter four, verse nine, the actually, Paul actually asks, "Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth?" Chapter four, verse sixteen. Paul says in four twelve or four twenty. I'm sorry. I would love to be present and change my tone about you because I have doubts about you. He calls them people who desire to be under the law. In the next verse. It tells us in chapter 5, verse 4, you've been estranged from Christ. And then, a term people have often used, but often very out of the context, is you've fallen from grace. Fallen from grace does not mean that somebody's done something stupid and sinned. Fallen from grace means you've walked away from the grace of Jesus Christ to try to earn what God paid for He says in chapter 5, verse 15, that they bite and devour one another. And he says in verse 26, "Stop being we should not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. It's in this particular book that Paul would say, by the way, that though he took Titus with him, even Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised when he went to Jerusalem. And it's in this book in 3.24 that we read that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Many of you are familiar with that text. You get it here. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, 522. That comes from this book as well. What we'll find by the time we're done is that there is a simple battle between the flesh nature and the Spirit. And no matter how other people portray it, in the context of Galatians, and again, never just believe me, search the Scripture and prove me right or wrong, the point is that the flesh nature is me first, I'll do it, I'll earn it. The Spirit is the spirit nature, being led by God's spirit is, God, you need to do what I surrender. In one case, it's all about earning and striving, and in the other case, it's all about surrendering and trusting by faith. That's going to be the difference, and that's the battle he tells us so clearly at the end of this book. His conclusion comes to two very simple verses. Chapter 5, verse 6, and chapter 6, verse 15. In chapter 5, verse 6, he tells us this. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision, nor uncircumcision avails anything. In other words, that's not the point. The point is, faith working through love, that's 5.6. In 6.15 he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So in the simplest sense, Paul says, here's what it really boils down to. Who you are and what you do. Who you are, you need to be a new creation. What you do, You need to exercise your faith and love. Because if we got those two things out of this book, the rest of it would fall in line. You see, the problem with the Pharisees is that they weren't busy trying to be a refurbished creation, not a new one. With a refurbished, that means just take the parts I don't like and let's take the other parts and let's just quote-unquote redeem them. The problem is Jesus doesn't become Lord when you're telling Him how you are the foreman of the construction site of your life. We need to be new creations. And to be that, we need to hand Him the rights to the property of of our being. But then in regards to doing, if you truly exercise, if I truly exercise my faith, my trust in God, the greatest way to exercise that trust is to be selfless and to serve you for the purpose of bringing you closer to Christ. That's what love is, according to Scripture. So, having said all of that, my goal now is quite simple for the rest of this time. And that is simply to read through the book of Galatians. Why do you need to hear me teach when the book can do it for you? So, let's go through the book and we're just going to simply read through it and pray. Maybe, because I'm terrible with the discipline of not inserting something here or there, but I'll try my best. The point is, I want to make sure you see what the Scripture says before anything is developed on it, because the Scripture is what you're going to have to test everything by anyways. Now, get the idea. You'll start to see themes in this about Paul really wanting to make clear that this is either a work of God or it's a work of man. You're going to have to decide. So look at it with me. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the father who raises him from the dead or raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me grace to you and peace from God the father and our lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our god and father to whom be glory forever and ever amen I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, then let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known this to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by faith to the churches in Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Could this be that Acts 15? with Barnabas. And I also took Titus with me and I I went up by revelation. Well, it would be rough because Barnabas and he had been separated by them. But I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately among those who were of reputation. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now this occurred... "...because false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God chose no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary... When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Kephas, that's Peter, by the way, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, well, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. But now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, uh, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And there I said, the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not of that of the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Well, certainly not. Not. If I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, well, then Christ died in vain. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Oh, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as right for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evidence, for the just shall live by faith know this quick moment. When he quotes from Habakkuk, the statement is simple. The just are either going to try to make themselves right by their own strength, or they will live by faith. What I love is that God does not allow us to define any of those things without His Scripture. Because the moment you change the meaning of any of those, you change the whole meaning of the sentence. As a result of that, what God will do is God will allow that verse to be quoted three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. And when He quotes from that, by the way, for what it's worth, <clears throat> originally from Habakkuk 2.4, He will quote from it here in Galatians. And then he'll quote from it in the book of Romans, by the way, four four. 4.4. Actually, it's going to be beyond that. And then in uh, Romans 17. And then he will quote from it in the book of Hebrews. What's beautiful is, is that if we go in order, the first of those being Romans, the whole point of it is the just. He defines that because it's the first one. Then comes Galatians, and that's this. And that's the shall live. Then we get to the book of Hebrews, the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11. And that we know is the hall of faith. That's the by faith. As a matter of fact, that's exactly the term that you'll find over and over and over again in Hebrews 11. God wants to make sure you know how important it is that the just, those that are made right by the gift of Jesus Christ so that all of their guilt is properly paid on the cross, That's the just according to the book of Romans. Because there's no one right in the wages of our sin because we're all sinners. The wages of that sin is death. Jesus paid that death and offers us then to be more than conquerors, set free, adopted by the King of Kings. And that's the just. The book of Galatians, are we going to walk in the flesh or are we going to walk in the Spirit? That is... The shall live, and then in the book of Hebrews, chapters end of chapter ten, beginning of chapter eleven, through chapter eleven, it'll be the by faith. And he stops to quote it here to make sure again that we get the shall live is the entire idea of the book of Galatians. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs." on a tree and again now he's quoting again from the book of Deuteronomy the blessing of abraham might come upon the gentiles in jesus in christ jesus that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith brethren i speak in a manner of men though though it is only a man's covenant it is confirmed if it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it now to abraham and to his seed where the promises made He does not say unto seeds, as in plural, as to many, but as to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant, which was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. But if the inheritance is of the law, well, then it's no longer promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Well, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only. How do you mediate for one? A mediator has to mediate between two people, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Of course not, certainly not. For if there had been a law which would have given life, well then truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. The the law and the promise were working together. The promise was a promise of redemption. The law showed we all needed to be redeemed. But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, pedagogos. It's the idea of being a child's personal teacher to lead them to that place where they could finally serve under the Father. To bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now could you imagine reading this and being a slave owner in America a hundred years ago? Where it tells us here there's neither slave nor free. Neither Jew nor Gentile, or Greek as it says here. Neither male nor female. There have been, even today, cultures where a woman is considered half a man, where a slave isn't considered human at all. God knew this so much that He told us to go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. You ever wonder why He said that? Because in every culture there's been somebody that's not been considered human, but more creature And God says it doesn't disqualify him. I want them all hearing the gospel. We're halfway. Chapter 4. Now I see that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ much from a slave, doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he's the master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were under bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those ...who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, will God send forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, well then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which were by nature not God's. But now, after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. That's where you came from. Why would you want that now? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you. Lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me. For I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. At first in my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Though they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you might be zealous for them. Oh, it is good to be zealous. In a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you, O my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would love to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, and one was by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Oh, which things are symbolic. For these things are two covenants. The one, Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage by her children. But the Jerusalem above, well, that's free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, and you who do you see, and you who do not bear break forth and shout for you who are not in labor for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. That's Isaiah 54, verse one. Now we, brethren, as I as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, well, what does the Scripture say? We'll cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Well, stand fast, therefore, brothers, to the liberty in which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again to the yoke of bondage. Oh, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he who is a debtor to keep the whole law, well, yeah, if you become circumcised, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh and they are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident to adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, "'murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, "'of which I, t- I tell you beforehand, "'just as I also told you when time passed, "'that those who practice such things "'will not inherit the kingdom of God. "'But the fruit of the Spirit is "'love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, "'faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. "'Against such there is no law. "'And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh "'and its passions and desires.' If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something, well, he's nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who was taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'll see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Oh, but God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. For now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Well, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Bring this to close, I just want to point out one quick thing here. If you think that what the enemy would really love is to have no churches, I think I might differ with you in that opinion. I believe what the enemy is, would really like is not a London without churches, but rather just churches without Jesus. See, because if You had churches, there could be a false sense of security, which is infinitely more dangerous than actually being aware of how desperate and destitute you are. And if the enemy could have his way, he wouldn't have people stop calling themselves Christians. He would just remove the cross. Not just the cross that redeemed us, what Christ died upon, paid for our sins. But the one that we're supposed to pick up and carry daily, that that demands that we deny ourselves. You know what's amazing? The more I think about it, the more I see him have his way. Not here, and certainly we're not the only one. My heart is not that we be the greatest thing. My heart is that every church be the right thing. Oh, beloved, listen. Church buildings are becoming flats. They're becoming pubs. They're becoming social clubs and theaters. And Some of you have heard this before. It grieved me so much as I threw it before the Lord and said, God, please. What's going on? And, I, and I've, obviously, I mean, if I could be transparent, part of it is, dang it, we don't have a building, and look at what's happened to these ones. What the Lord had been showing is that s- these churches were those very things before that point. They were just called a church when it was happening. They were theaters. They were social clubs. They were bars where people went and, and had their wine parties and their whatevers. There were flats where people just came in and slept. They just weren't homes where the Lord would be at home in houses of prayer. But the reason wasn't because simply because there was a leader that was astray, but a church. God's people were not taking a stand for what is right. The reason why Paul is so adamant to the Galatians is this is the very core of your, of your faith. The very core of who you are as a Christian is trusting what Christ has done. Not trying to add on to it great things you've done to make you more redeemable. God didn't love any of us because we were so darn lovable. He loved us because He's love. And the good news is, is because of that, you'll never, have, you'll never blow it. He'll never change his mind. When Jesus died on the cross, we were his enemies. And he knew every failure and every regret and every bad ambition and evil thought we would ever possess. But it never changed his mind and never even thwarted him. Because he's committed, beloved. With each of these letters, we're going to be, in essence, raked over the coals ourselves, run through with the comb. and, and, And I have to ask myself, and I challenge you to do the same, is there any part of me that's trying to earn what you want to give me? Is there any part of me that would be quick to listen to the fancy talker? The person that's sort of the you-can-do-it-self-help kind of thing. Oh, rely on yourself and life is going to be better as long as you do it and you can make it happen. Now, I'm not talking about being irresponsible. What I'm talking about is trusting God with the results and being responsible for obedience. The problem with Abraham, the reason he had two sons, is because one of them was not by obedience. Well, obedience to Sarah, but not obedience to God. And it was a work of the flesh. As we go to prayer to conclude the evening, my heart's desire for each of us would be that we'd be so enamored with the beautiful grace of God that we'd never fall from it. Did you notice he didn't say that you tripped over the grace of God, but that you fell, you've fallen from grace? Which tells us that the place, the high place, the place of exaltation, the place of honor is actually the place of grace. And you've fallen from it to try to earn it. There's the irony. You're trying to elevate yourself, but in trying to elevate yourself, you've fallen off of the beautiful high place that God put you because he gave you that because he loves you. You'll never make yourself higher in the sight of God by what you perform when God has already loved you before that point. And if we could gather that, we could rest in him and let him use us instead of trying to work for God, which doesn't bless him at all. When Jesus was being baptized, the Father speaks from heaven. He parts the sky. Rents the sky. The voice shatters heaven, if you will, and speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But He hadn't done a single miracle. He hadn't taught a single message and raised the dead or healed the sick or cast out any demons. He hadn't even stood toe-to-toe to the enemy. He hadn't even been tempted by the enemy for 40 days. But do you understand what the Father said? He could have simply just said, this is My Son, let's get on it. But it isn't what He said. He said, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, what could make him so well pleased if he hadn't taught the messages yet, healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out the demons, stood toe-to-toe against the, the bad religious leaders of the day, or defeated the enemy in his temptations? It's because he was his son. That's the point. I have two beautiful children that I get to look at, and any moment that I enjoy them is a moment I'm well pleased with them. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to perform for me. All they have to do is allow me to love them. That's all I want. Now, the problem is, you know, they're girls, and girls will be girls, and and it's like, you you know, there gets that time as they get older, you can't, you know, kissing them even on the head is awkward. Holding their hand as they walk across the street is awkward. But I know I'll always miss it. I can't make them small again. That would be weird for all of us, especially them. But I'll be able to hold it. And I can't believe how nostalgic I've gotten already this year. As I look at a 17-year-old girl that's going to be 18 by the end of the year and off to college. And I look and I think, the special moments where it was just me and her. She did nothing but just, well, if she did anything, she enjoyed me. Those will always be my, my favorite moments. It wasn't like we conquered anything, we climbed over anything, we took down and slayed any giants together. We're just together. And the Lord is showing me that in my own walk with Him. because You know, that's really all I cherish are those moments. I mean, giants do get slain. And things do get conquered and great things do come about, but they're not because you did them for me. Just that we got to be together. That's what I hold. Cher- That's what I cherish. Those are the things that are in the curio cabinet of my heart. Beloved, please hear this. There's a Father in heaven that so desperately just wants to enjoy you. You wonder why you wake up in the middle of the night, but you don't have time for any other. You wonder why all of a sudden your phone goes dead, or the lights go out or the whatever, when everything else you could do can't be done. Sometimes you may even wonder why you got the flu. Because while you lay in bed miserable, the only thing left to do is to be with Him. I think He'd rather have you sick than not have you at all. And as we pray, could God give us that heart? that lives to please Him by enjoying Him. I can't think of a thing that would bless Him more. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank You. Thank You for this amazing sixth chapter full of vinegar letter with the indignation the righteous indignation of a person who is so concerned. Not because they're arguing, debating over points of doctrine, and even that can be so silly. But because walking away from Jesus, it doesn't even say that we walk from one gospel to another, but that we leave you for another gospel. That's what we're trading in. We're not trading in one doctrine for another. Jesus, we'd be trading in you for a doctrine. And that is criminal. And God, I I confess to you that in the trappings, in the weeds that grow of life around us, it's so easy sometimes just to get caught up in so many other things and it's like coexisting versus enjoying each other. But no relationship flourishes that way. Uh, Granted, there will be times to do things. But there's nothing that we should be doing without you. You. You're there whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And I pray, Lord, that as in the weeks to come as we go through this book, that You will speak profoundly to each of us, Lord, in such a way that we will fall deeply in love with You. And that we would be able to say, oh, this is my Father in whom I'm well pleased because he's just awesome. And that we would in our own hearts seek to bless you. And that we would seek to enjoy you the way you created us to. We recognize this couldn't even happen had you not first paid the price by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And because of that, the old person is crucified. That old person may be quick to debate. That was what Paul had to learn as we look at the book of Acts. How he had to learn that it isn't about arguing or debating people into heaven. Though he had been so trained to debate and argue. But that same man would ultimately say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ because it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. And I really believe you believe that. That in the end of it all, that very gospel that Paul himself would claim would be foolishness to the Greek mind and a stumbling block to the Jew would be the very power you use to transform anyone who would trust you. And Lord, I I just pray that if there be anything that we are trying to drag over the cross that you want to just see dead, that we would relinquish it tonight. And that you would so transform us. You would actually show us the freedom that comes when we take our hands off the project and let you do the work you want to do. I want to thank you, Lord, for the wonderful walk we were able to have today. And for the way you just show me, Lord, how this is supposed to be so simple, pure, beautiful. So thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection, just like scripture promised three days later, to offer us that new life that we could see here to say what really matters is the new creation. Not just laying ourselves down, but allowing you to make us the new creation you want. Thank you that the part that you left in our hands was the choice to say yes to that. And thank you, Lord, that we said yes. But if there be any who haven't, it's a simple prayer. God, I am a sinner. And you punish sin. You so love me. You send Jesus, your only begotten son, to die on that cross. So that all my sin could be punished. And Just like Scripture promised, he rose on the third day. And so I receive him as Savior at the cross. and. As Lord at the resurrection, so that He would be the Lord of my life to make me the new creation you intend. So, here I am, I'm yours. I receive that gift, Father. Make me yours in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, Lord, I pray now for us, each in this room, that this week would be a week, Lord, where you romance us. Where as a Father, you encumber us, you in, just engulf us in your safety and your peace that You promise in Isaiah to keep us in when our minds are stayed on You. And this week, Lord, may we walk in Your Spirit as You intend. In Jesus' name, Amen.